Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. A lucky few this week will be invited to the launch of the exhibition of the bust of one-time and first Welsh Secretary, Jim Griffiths, at the pierhead in Cardiff Bay. Who was this titan of Welsh politics and what makes him relevant in the 21st century? Perhaps Jim still is, but is that role he first took up as Secretary of State for Wales still relevant today? Joining us tonight to talk Jim Griffiths and that somewhat poisoned chalice of Secretary of State is Theo Davis-Lewis, Chief Political Commentator at The National. Hello, Theo. Hi, Matt. And D. Ben Rees, author, lecturer and minister in the Presbyterian Church of Wales. Hello, Ben. No sweat that. No sweat that, okay. Um, so, Ben, start us off. Who was Jim Griffiths and how did his political career begin? Well, he, he was from a Welsh-speaking village outside Ammonford called Betus, son of a blacksmith, uh, William Rees Griffiths, very staunch liberal. They were a large family, 10 originally. They lost two in infancy. And uh, the others were all extremely interesting people, especially the three lads. One, William, was killed in a pit explosion. And then the other one, Diagraphies, became a poet, a manui. And then there was Jim. And Shawnee was also Collier. And um, he was brought up in this well-speaking home, a well-speaking independent chapel called Gellimanwyd in Welsh, Christian Temple in English in Ammonford, and that was a very important influence on his life. And then left school at 11 to work as a collier, but his father told him that most probably they would, they would send him to a, a theological school uh, in a year's time. But once he got interested in the work of the colliery, he never looked back and then became, of course, very interested in trade unionism and interested in Keir Hardy and the Independent Labour Party and began in 1908 a, a branch of the Independent Labour Party in Ammerford. And that was the beginning of his political endeavours and activities. How distinguished was his early career, Ben, and just how successful was he as a member of parliament and minister? Well, he was very successful because he was one of these people who get, could get on well with everybody. You only had two years in the Central Labour College in London, 1919 to 1921. And among his uh, contemporaries, there was an Irene Bevan, an S. Edwards, and D.J. Williams, and many others. But uh, he wasn't like an Irene Bevan. He was a man of compromise and diplomacy. And uh, he became, of course, the president of the South Wales Miners Union, and he loved that work. Then when the by-election came in, uh, in Llanelli in 1936, he got in. And within two years, he had made his impact on his fellow Labour MPs and also on his fellow MPs from Wales. And they invited him to become secretary of the Welsh Parliamentary Party. And he was in that job over the Second World War. And it was during that time that he became very involved in the call for a secretary of state for Wales. I mean, he had the largest majority in the whole of Britain in 1945, uh, 34,000. I mean, can you believe it? I told Nia Griffiths the other day that 
I said, Nia, you'd like that, wouldn't you? And she said, she said, <laughs> she said, yes, I would. I mean, a majority of 34,000. He was our Jim. There's not much I can add to, you know, Jim Griffiths' biographer, which I should, <laughs> should, have, should have mentioned at the start, that um, uh, Ben is, is, is almost solely responsible for keeping uh, Jim's sort of consciousness and impact alive, I think, over the last few years, English and first a Welsh language biography of Jim Griffiths, which I would recommend all of the listeners to, to read, of course, because all of those achievements, which, by the way, doesn't actually scratch the surface of um, what Jim achieved, uh, is, is quite amazing. And what, what Jim represents, I think, in the sort of long arc of Welsh devolution and, you know, the, the campaign for a Secretary of State for Wales, but also what we'll touch upon, the impact that had on creating a National Assembly for Wales. Uh, and I think what's most interesting for Jim, and obviously this bust that's being unveiled now, I think Wales has got a kind of self-confidence and understanding of, of the the powers, the advantage to Welsh self-government and having a representative. And that necessarily wasn't the case, of course, for the Labour Party for the majority of the 20th century. And to this day, uh, I'd argue that parts of the Labour Party have been more responsible for uh, not commemorating Jim than anyone else. So yeah, yeah it was, well, they really, they really neglected him. I mean, when the Stelwood came to Llanelli in 1962, I remember saying then that you know they had really neglected him. He was a forgotten politician, really. And it's our generation. Uh, very, you're very kind to what you to me tonight, but uh, I think I, I'm rather responsible for giving people an idea of his stature and how important he was. I mean, he was important in the welfare state, so the first Labour government. I mean, the Minister of Insurance, you know, he brought in with Devon, uh, the creator of the National Health Service, he brought in the welfare state and then became Minister for the Colonies. And especially when he became Deputy uh, Leader of the Labour Party in 1955, defeating Bevan and then having a very good relationship with Hugh Gateskill. And it was in that period that he was able to carry out the promise that there should be a Secretary of State for Wales and also a Welsh office. He was really a man of um, the choice of the opportunity. And I question in my books on how did he... Why did he do it in that period? Because it is a difficult time for him. He lost his brother, Amanui, in 1953. And then Trowerin came. And that was a very bombshell in Welsh politics. And I think he realised between those two periods that the Labour Party should really be more, more representative of the people of Wales than they were. They were just getting on with it, doing well in elections, but not providing anything special. And uh, especially when he got Bevan on his side, he, he was at home and dry. And before, Matt, we let you ask us ask all, ask all us all the questions and, you know, you can leave us sycophants to be quiet about, about Jim Griffiths. Uh, to add to what Ben says there, I think what's sort of the common thread throughout his career in terms of what I've seen, he was the president of the Fed, you know, in the, yes. in the, in the 1930s. And that was in a dire state when he took over. Minister, uh, as, as Ben says, in the Clemenatley government, you know, had things like the Family Allowances Act, National Insurance Act. You know, then he was Labour Party, Secretary of State of Wales. All of these institutions he went into and all of the problems he came about, 
he was he was essentially a very very skillful politician, which probably yes. is the most most frustrating thing uh, that hasn't been reflected because obviously we see Nye Bevan, which is yes. how I pit, I've very unfairly um, sort of pitted Griffiths against Bevan. But the point is is that we see Bevan for who is for his energy and his aggression and his ability to deliver. But Jim yes. was just as are just as competent as doing that yes in yes. a very different style so i think that's one of the most interesting things that i'd encourage your listeners to take away from his career is that at every point this man that we we scarcely hear of was a, was an extremely successful pragmatist and that is very rare actually in welsh politics and yeah. that's why of course um it's very very important that we remember him and he was such such a loyalist but he, he was also strong enough to rebel when there was a need. And he did rebel at the end of his life on the civil war in Biafra, in Nigeria, when he went against Harold Wilson and voted a few times against his own party. And uh, he was a bit of a problem for them. But it showed that he had his own independence of mind and that he was willing to stand up for what he believed in. And I admire him very much for that period in his life. He and Fenner Brockway went out twice to Biafra in uh, 1969 and um, made a great plea for truce between them and also uh, that the Labour government should not sell arms to, to uh, Nigeria and um, carry on the war that was not necessary. But he felt, he felt a great affinity with small nations. That was shown when he was in charge of the Commonwealth. And many of those that came up uh, as leaders of the Commonwealth, they were really ad admired him so much. And he was always invited to, you know, when they had um, special ceremonies for independence for those countries. I mean, I think our listeners probably need a bit of context comparing the Labour Party of Jim Griffiths' time with the, the Labour Party of the modern day, the very proudly Welsh Labour. How would you describe the relationship that the PL, the Welsh PLP had with Wales and how pro-Wales did it appear, at least from the outside, and, and what kind of difficulties did Jim have in making this role happen, the Secretary of State of Wales role? Oh, he had, he had a terrible time because most of the MPs from the South Wales coalfield were against Secretary of State for Wales. They were afraid that you were, you were conceding to the nationalists and there'd be, there'd be a Welsh parliament and independence. And you had the big names like, uh, you know, Anairin Bevan and Ness Edwards, those two. But there were others like Yori Thomas from the Ronda. And he was fierce against it. And uh, Jim Callaghan was against it. So he had, he had to win those people over in the end. He never, he never got... Uh, he never convinced Ness Edwards or Yori Thomas, but he did convince Bevan and he did convince Callaghan. But it was a difficult time because also Plaid Cymru was gunning for him and they were um, really unfair in many ways to him and, and Cledwin Hughes. They were unfair to those that were more or less on their side, as it were. They just couldn't understand that, Cledwin Hughes especially couldn't understand why Plaid Cymru was so furious against Jim Griffiths and against him, because they were trying to have the same things that Welsh nationalists wanted, the Secretary of State for Wales, Welsh Assembly. So he had a 
difficult job. And even when he became secretary, there were people behind his back, like Ivor Davis, Gower, Leo Apsi. A lot of these people were still gunning again, uh, and he had to put a stop to it. He, he called them together and, and more or less lectured them and said, listen, this has been decided. You are not going to rock the boat. But of course, in the 70s, they were back in style. I mean, we had the gang of six, Kinnock and, and uh, others that stopped the, uh, the referendum, really. I mean, the, the Welsh Labour Party were unable to get, get that through. But uh, Jim was still hoping that people like John Morris, and John Morris did a great job as Secretary of State for Wales, uh, John Morris and William Priest Davies and Emerys Jones, the, the uh, Secretary of the Welsh Labour Party, that those people would carry on the good work that he had started and uh, had implemented and had been given an opportunity as Secretary of State for Wales. Many people say that, you know, Rodri Morgan was the, the father of devolution, but for by the sounds of it, it sounds like Jim Griffiths really should be oh, yeah. given I mean, that title. Rodri Morgan, Rodri Morgan is not, is not in the same world as, as, <laughs> as, as Jim Griffiths. I mean, Rodri was a, came from a very Welsh-speaking home. I mean, his father was a Welsh professor, but he uh, he didn't have the convictions of Jim Griffiths. Yeah, and I think yeah. this is this is what the interesting bit is. And you know, we obviously won't be saying this to the first minister, whose great idol, of course, is probably Rodri Morgan and, yeah, Jim, quite, Griffiths, quite. and Jim Griffiths. But I, th I think I think Ben's Ben's right there, and you know, Jim often doesn't get the credit because. Again, it's the context, you know, the, the case for the Welsh Assembly. Even Jim wasn't necessarily convinced in the 1940s in the same way. It, you know, it was all, ha it, it's, again, it's that Ron Davis quote is that devolution is a process, not an event. And the first part of the process in, in Parliament, you know, there was Welsh parliamentary groups. There was a Welsh Liberal Party, kind of a distinctive group of them at the start of the 20th century and a Secretary of State for Wales. But to reflect, I think, back, Matt, uh, to your question to to Ben, it's also worth pointing out that there were some basic things which I think were totally different uh, with the Labour Party of today in Wales. And back then, you know, kind of scepticism towards the Welsh language. And Jim was very unique in being able to shift, shift in a sort of symphonic way to appeal to industrial communities, but also Welsh language communities, which not many Labour politicians could yeah. do. Um, but I see him as the, as the founder of devolution in modern Wales in the context of, you know, his achievements as Secretary of State for Wales were not that significant. He only had two years and he was an old man. What he did was, as any politician in Wales of substance has to do, you have to win the battles within the Labour Party. It doesn't really matter necessarily what happens in Plaid Cymru so much or the Conservatives. If you win the battle in Labour, and often Plaid helps that and contributes to that, you can really change the landscape of Wales. And what Jim did, as Ben has articulated, is convince an Iron Bevan and also British figures like Herbert Morris of the need for a spokesman for Wales in Westminster and slightly vice versa, not in the same way as we have today, of course. But he, you know, he could convince people in a kind of soft nationalist way because he was a Welsh speaker and he was a working class man. But also he could convince the likes of Callaghan and Callaghan was also, as Ben says, opposed to it. It was only when he saw the kind of effective, effectiveness of a Scottish secretary that he was pulled over to the idea. So yeah. I, see him as the, I see him as the founder of devolution in that way. You know, his abilities were 
kind of forgotten. I think it's just unfortunate in some ways, just the the narrative that we've had, because we've kind of, in Wales, we've we've always ached the statesman in Wales. And I would probably say there are three statesmen that we had in the 20th century, and that was Lloyd George, Bevan and Jim. Two of them were championed and cherished and idolised. The third, because devolution in Wales hasn't necessarily set in until now, no one's really thought to think of what this man has done for this process, yeah. so maybe that's changing. But he, he, he did have it, he, he had a difficult time in those two years. As you say, he was 74, but he also, the, the civil servants in London were not very keen on cooperating. People like uh, Dame Evelyn Sharp, uh, she thought, no, we're not passing on our kingdom to the Welsh in, in Cate's Park. So the, he didn't get what he wanted. Neither did Cledwin Hughes. In actual fact, it was George Thomas who got the spoils of, of, of the post, really, in his hands. But it took a while. It took four or five years before Whitehall well, allowed the positions and, and the responsibilities to be passed on to the Secretary of State for Wales. If I can come in now, gents, the role that was created, the Secretary of State role, what was the real impact of that creation, do you think? And do you think the, the, the power that Jim had, how does that compare to a modern Secretary of State? Not in the same world. I mean, really, one could say that we don't really need a Secretary of State for Wales anymore. And we should have more people in the assembly than having a Secretary of State for Wales. But the only thing, the only th argument for the Secretary of State for Wales is that he's got a seat in the cabinet. And that's very important. But as far as the authority he's got and, and the work he's got to do, I mean, it's not in the same uh, league as, uh, as Jim. I mean, Jim was, um, well, while he was beginning, I mean, even Jim didn't have as much as he should have had. But uh, it grew, the, the post grew through to the period of um, John Morris and afterwards to the Conservatives that came. I mean, Nicholas Edwards, he was there for a long time, seven years, and he was very influential in his own way with, um, with, with the post he had as the Secretary of State for Wales. So I agree with you in the sense that uh, there is a question now of, is, is the Assembly going to grow in numbers? If it is, then perhaps the Secretary of State for Wales could be done away with. But I don't know. It's, it's an open question. Well, let, me, let me just ask that to Theo, then. This is a short, blunt question, Theo. Mm. Does yeah. the role still need to exist? Not in its current format, I don't think so. And this is what I've very sadly had to argue, because I was in the minority even in the last couple of years, saying that there is a, a value to the Secretary of State for Wales. But I, I do think... The way the office has been managed over the last couple of years has not been a constructive way uh, for Welsh politics. And I don't just mean that because I don't agree with the policies of the incumbent. I just think the way that it has pit Wales and Westminster against each other. And of course, there is blame on both sides and there's, you know, it takes two to tango, etc. But I, I really, really struggle to see even a silhouette of what the purpose of the Wales office is beyond uh, a function of the UK government in Wales. And that's not what Jim Griffiths envisaged. That's not what Cledwin Hughes envisaged. That's not what Nicholas Edwards, Wynne Roberts, all these people, they no. didn't envisage this. And this is, of course, very easily tied to the, the policies of this Conservative government. And listen, at the end of the day, we all know 
the relevance of the Welsh Secretary became slightly more redundant after devolution because powers were being transferred. Yes, but you yes, could see right. after, after Brexit, you could form a kind of conduit, but it takes a very pragmatic government to have a conduit between Cardiff and Westminster. Um, and that's just not where our politics is. I mean, just on the on the function of it, Kerry, uh, and the impact it had, I think, you know, I think Ben is right to reflect the powers were very minimal for Jim. They were very administrative. Uh, rather than, uh, of course, lawmaking and so on. It was a very administrative function. What is interesting is the wider impact, because we can say, you know, oh, is there any interest in devolution? Do people really care about what's gone on in the Assembly and the Synod? And what Jim writes, or what Jim wrote about, and this was, I think, in a in a book which was pr- uh, printed by the Labour Party, I think, with a with a with a text from uh, J. Beverly Smith at the start from Aberystwyth University as like an introduction to Jim's life. In that, there's an essay from Jim uh, where he talks about you know guarding the inheritance of the Welsh Labour Party and the socialists and the liberals that came before. And what Jim says about being Welsh Secretary and the judge of his judgment of his success is that in the next general election, there was a Labour landslide in 1966. Of course, the Gwynfor Evans by-election yes. in 66 wasn't overtly helpful. But Jim saw that as a vote of confidence in the Labour Party right. and in the fact that the Secretary of State for Wales has been successful. So I think this is a very long-winded answer, of course, Gary, but you know, no, the, the purpose of it today is very hard to see, which I think is extremely sad. Uh, because I think, for me, it's the great office of State for Wales, and I don't think it is anymore. No. Well, there's a wonderful letter by John Morris to George Wright, the uh, Secretary of the Trade Union, the Welsh Trade Union Congress in the 70s, where he points out all the work, all the jobs, as it were, that he had as Minister of, uh, for Wales, and they've all gone to the Assembly. When you look at that letter and say, well, yes, he's right. They've all, they're all now in the assembly. And uh, so th- there is a change, obviously. But of course, the se- present Secretary of State can argue that he goes to America to find work, business for Wales, and does this. And he's a representative of Wales on the U- UK scene and the European scene and the world scene. So there's, I think there's an argument of two ways. I mean, great friend of mine, William Priest Davis, he argued like Theo did to retain the, the post. And I was surprised when he told me that he, that he had come to that conclusion. It was after Peter Hayne was the Secretary of State for Wales in that period, early years of this century. But he, was, he agreed with, with what you just said. You know, obviously there's a lot of talk about uh, abolishing the role and be interested to know whether you think that's serious. But what about, is it serious, the, the idea that the Secretary of State for Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland could be replaced by a Secretary of the Nations? Well, I mean, I find that very difficult to envisage in some ways because that wouldn't necessarily respect the distinctiveness of each nation. Uh, I think it's very hard to actually argue now what each Secretary of State contributes. I think, it, I think inevitably, as much as we might say it's not tied up with the party that they're a part of, and to some extent it is because the philosophy of devolution for this party, this Conservative Party today, which has historically, uh, as a party, embraced devolution, certainly to local governments anyway, uh, is to use Secretary of State to overarch devolved institutions. And this is a very basic explainer, which many of your listeners will be aware of anyway. But just by that very nature, it makes the Secretary of State positions 
extremely difficult to justify when you have even more powerful first ministers. I mean, there's, the only great office we have now is the first minister. Uh, and I certainly, as a you know, as growing up in Wales, I was born in 1997. The point is, is that I still looked to Britain in my youth and Westminster as where the power was. It's only been really, I think, the last three or four years where people like me, but also many other young people, other people of different ages, yeah. even, even more re relatively sooner, uh, more, sort of re more recently in the pandemic, have looked and not looked at Westminster, but they've looked at Cardiff. And that is an extremely seismic shift. Whereas Jim's time, of course, you could only look to Westminster. And I think that's quite a, a fundamental shift that we've had in our politics. Yeah. Yeah. You've touched on the current holder of the role, Theo. What do you make of Simon Hart's time in that role? And do you think he is a net plus to the union? Or do you think he does more damage than good? I don't think he actually has any impact whatsoever because the Welsh Secretary is not a significant position uh, and he is not a well-known politician. He is more in the Welsh context, someone who uh, is, is seen to be a provocateur, I think, in Wales. I'm very happy to, to listen to the Secretary of Wales. I've interviewed him. I thought he was a, um, you know, a, a decent, decent man. I disagreed with him fundamentally on, on several things, uh, including the sovereignty of Wales and the understanding of Welsh history. And I think this is actually a problem with the Welsh Conservative ideology anyway, that they, I, I think there's a failure to understand the story of Wales or misinterpret it. And it's not just because I disagree with them, the forces that are happening in Wales, they don't seem to understand. Uh, and in that way, it's very damaging for him and the Wales office, because the Wales office has become a kind of symbol of, sort of a, a seen as a colonial outpost. To some yeah, people, yeah. and as a as a governor general, in very crude terms, and, and in, in jest, that's what some nationalists would, of course, joke about. So I don't think he's been able to actually carve out the role as Secretary of State for Wales, which is effective. But I think that's also a, a reflection of how toxic, you know, the debates about the union that we've discussed before have become. That it's very hard for him to to, to fulfil any other role. Certainly when I met with him and I gave him a copy of Ben's book on, on Jim, uh, which I think, I hope is still on the coffee table, but uh, it's, it's there and it's registered as a gift, I, I hope, in the, the Wales office logs. Essentially, you know, the Wales office had a, a really, really powerful emotive role, I think, in Wales and actually did do a lot of good. It's had previous incumbents who have been extremely popular, but now I think it's a more of a fundamental issue with the with the government at hand and how they see devolution rather than one individual. Because he's simply, I've said before, he's a product of the cabinet, product of the government rather than a lone wolf or a unique figure in that sense. Ben, do you think that this role needs a, a, a Labour government in Westminster to work or at least a government of the same political colour at the either end of the M4 to really be it most effective? It always helps, I would say. See, the problem with the Labour Party is that they've been, they haven't had all that opportunity to, um, to be in government. I mean, large periods they've been out of office, but to have a Secretary of State who is also a Labour politician, and, and with Wales being a Welsh Labour heartland, then I think that works, would work much better than you when you have Conservative as Secretary of State. I mean, we've had some atrocious ones. You know, like John Redwood and uh, 
and you know the, these were, were sent in because there were no one in Wales to represent the Conservative Party in that position. I mean, things seem better these days, but uh, I mean, in that period, they had no idea, no idea of what Wales stood for, no idea of its culture, language, traditions, nothing. Uh, Peter Walker admitted that, and uh, he was one of the most sensible of them. Um, but, you know, they, they were so far away from, uh, from the Welsh heartland of Gwynedd and Ceredigion and Mid Wales and so on, and even South Wales. So it would work much better. Uh, I think that's the answer to your question. Yeah, what was your, what do you make of that? I mean, there have been, you know, some conservative sections of state with Wales with some links, I suppose you'd call them, to, mm. to Wales. You know, William Hague always makes a lot of his Welsh yeah. connections. Well, he lives in Wales now, I think, as well, uh, Lord yeah. Hague of Richmond. Um, so, Listen, I think there's been successful statesmen, Labour and Conservative. You know, I look at people like Wynne Roberts, who was a kind of another person who kind of respected and understood a bit more about Wales than perhaps John Redwood, of course, in the 1990s. Yes. The last few haven't been great, but then even, you know, Stephen Crabb, who kind of looked more like a Secretary of State, and you weren't slightly embarrassed to have him there because he had a Welsh seat to begin with, focused on economic investment in Wales. So all of these things have have helped there have been good ones of course but the point is again it's really hard as ben says to to find people to to take this position if you're especially if you're a conservative and now the local elections i think have been a real wake up or they should be a wake up anyway for the welsh conservative brand that should be funneling people into the parliamentary party in westminster and the synod and then of course eventually possibly to be cabinet ministers because i think they've They've realised now, they they've didn't need commentators like me to say anything. They don't listen to me anyway. It, they've actually had an election result to show that, yes, of course, it could do with Partygate and all these things. But look at BBC Wales front page earlier today when we we're speaking. It was four stories, four main stories in the politics page about basically how badly the Tories have done in Wales. And it's, 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 it's extremely embarrassing because you can win in Wales, I think, in the centre ground, uh, in, in certain seats anyway, if you are a conservative, uh, but they just have failed to grasp that on a kind of union sort of British level. I think Simon Hart has failed to grasp that in a kind of dogged fashion because they love, it suits them tactically to be confrontational with the Synev. But now they've had a reflection of what the people think and the people are left of centre, uh, in the centre ground, liberal people who, you know, like their leaders Welsh and being pro-Welsh, and I tried to describe the centre ground with you before, but it's very hard, but the point is you have to appear Welsh, and that doesn't mean speaking the language, it doesn't mean speaking the language at all, it's, it's kind of a, a Shakespearean act, uh, it's like a dance really, where you have to get all the parts right, and the most fundamental element is appearing Welsh, understanding the history, recognising the structures, the way you speak, it's not just photo ops, it's a wider strategic move for a party or for a politician to come across as Welsh. And that's where the centre ground is. Mark Drakeford and Adam Price do this so well, so like so well, more than any other modern politicians in Wales. And the Welsh Conservatives don't have one person who can do that. Maybe Sam Kurtz, we discussed, but he's too young to be leader probably. And the point is they don't have anyone who seems to ca calibrate 
where we are going. Like people like Jim Griffiths, who completely understood the dangers, as the Labour Party would have seen it back then, of the nationalist Welsh Nationalist Party, as well as the dangers of a Conservative Party. What does that leave you? It leaves you the centre ground. And that's what I think politicians like Jim were so good at doing. So, as we end, how would you think that we should reflect on Jim Griffiths' life and legacy in a modern Wales? How should he be honoured? Ben, do you want to start us off? Well, I, I think we're on the right track these days in the sense of this week in the Senate, we're going to start kind of remembering him as we should have a long time ago. And I think places like Llanelli can do much more than they've done uh, for him. And I, I believe that he was one of the very important politicians of the 20th century in Wales. And among the Welsh speakers, Welsh speaking politicians that he was really, most probably the first in, I mean, comparable to Lloyd George. I would say that he was, that Lloyd George had more opportunity and, and was more on the world scene than Jim. But uh, Jim was uh, a man of the people and uh, I met him a number of times and he was such a easygoing man to talk to and someone that remembered when we got married in Aberdeen in 1963, one of the people in the reception had a shock of their lives when a telegram was read out from Jim Griffiths to wish us well on our marriage. Now, who would think that a man like that on the verge of becoming Secretary of State for Wales? And I wasn't a member of, of, the, of the party in Llanelli. You know, I wasn't from Llanelli, I was from Cardiganshire, but he had met me, he knew of what I was doing. And that's, that's typical of Jim Griffiths. I mean, you can't beat a man like that in the small things in life, as well as the big things in life. He was a man of the people and remembered your name, remembered what you'd done and was always pleasant to look, to have a chat with. Such an easy man to, to get on with and a great uh, reconciler in the Labour Party. And he was one of the, he was so, such a favorite that he always would be elected to the National Executive Council. All the others would be left-wingers, Mikado, Bevan, Crossman, but Jim would always get in. And that's, I think, sums him up. He was a man that was loved by people of all shades of opinion in the Labour Party. Theo, how would you remember Jim Griffiths? Well, to quote back Ben's writing to him, uh, he, he writes that the Welsh never had a Moses, but Jim Griffiths, I think, came pretty close. Yeah. I, I think Ben has done a, a great job in his, auto, in his biographies of Jim to, to articulate very, in a very balanced way and, and criticisms of Jim at different times. Could he have done more, for example, during Trewirin? Um, you know, what did he achieve as Secretary of State for Wales? But all of these things are very minor points. I think, as Ben says, Jim, for me, is someone comparable to Lloyd George. I have two portraits, sort of prints, in my study, and one is uh, Lloyd George, the other is Jim Griffiths as a young man in the 1920s, I think. And for me, I put them on the same kind of pedestal in terms of the, the story of devolution in Wales, which I think is probably... Someone like me is obviously one of the most important things in life and the right for Welsh self-determination. 
Nye Bevan, to compare him unfavourably and unfairly to Jim, Nye Bevan wasn't as significant in the story of Welsh self-determination on a, in terms of big democratic structures. But for me, I always look at Jim as someone who kind of set, set us on the right path in the 1950s and 60s, again, steered the Labour Party, which is so critical if you want to succeed and to win and to achieve in Wales. That's the most important thing. And Jim Griffiths was right at the heart of that. Uh, and again, to go back to what I said to you earlier, in, in some of his writings and in that essay in that Labour Party book published, I think at the start of the 1970s, you know, he says to, to guard our inheritance, I take that wider and away and sort of outside of the Labour Party. You don't have to vote Labour to, to, to believe this. You know, Jim understood that devolution is known by Labour. You know, it wasn't owned by the Liberals. It was a continuum. And that's where we are today. And to think of Wales without Jim Griffiths, well, it's very hard to see where we'd be today without him. I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to both of you. Uh, if listeners have not done so already, please buy Ben's books, both in English and in Camrag, uh, and please read more of Theo Davis Lewis in The National and where else you can find him in a variety of wonderful you don't publications. Have to. Yeah, you don't have to, man. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a bit coercive. But yes, both, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us tonight. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find us on Twitter and Facebook at Pod and at our brand new website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.